Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Well, have I got a great gig for you today. <laughs> to round off our season before Christmas, I have got a wonderful guest, someone who many of you will know, someone who is one of the most courageous people I've met. Just imagine if you could sit down for an hour or two with one of New Zealand's most inspiring women. Supposing you could sit down and talk personally with someone who has heard and dealt with so much trauma, possibly the person in the whole of New Zealand who has come across more trauma than anyone else in this country. Imagine if there was someone who took upon it as their personal crusade to hear the real stories of injured New Zealanders. These are the New Zealanders who have been disbelieved, who have been outcast, who have been othered, who have been ignored. These are the New Zealanders that have been treated like lepers by the establishment, by the medical professionals. These are the people who did what was asked of them, and they took the injection, several injections in some cases. These are the very same people who were refused exemptions, whilst over a thousand medical practitioners and politicians were given exemptions. And one woman stood up strong and proud and said, I will hear you. I will record your experiences and I will believe you. And when everyone else was chanting the safe and effective mantra, one of the first people to stand up, I disbelieve what is being said in the mainstream manure. Because she listened and heard and recorded the stories of thousands of New Zealanders, hundreds every day. She commiserated. She believed. She did not question these people's incredible loyalty to their country. She validated them. And I wonder if you can imagine, if you don't already know who I'm talking about, I wonder if you can imagine the amount of stress and trauma this woman was exposing herself to, to every single day every single day, probably in each day, more trauma than most of us will experience in a lifetime. Well, now here is someone I wanted to talk to, and I wanted to ask her, how did you do it? And how do you do it? And she is an inspiration. Yes, I'm talking about Linda Wharton, her of Health Forum New Zealand, and her merry band of hardworking women. And along the way, I'm going to ask her what she thinks of the whistleblower's information, Barry Young. And along the way, she also shares the most remarkable story of family trauma and how, with the help of an organization called Al-Anon, she was able to find her way through it. Now, this is a woman who you do not want to miss hearing from. I felt utterly privileged to have her sit as my guest in the psychotherapist chair. And if you stay on after the session in the psychotherapist chair, you'll hear my reflections. 
And I'm going to give you a few little gems from Carl Gustav Jung, one of the founders of psychotherapy, and a model from another great hero of psychotherapy, Eric Byrne, the founder of transactional analysis. Almost can't say that, the founder of transactional analysis. And I'm going to share a story of how trauma can make us physically ill and how it's possible to work our way out of it. And that's all in the reflections. And then if you hang on for the third segment of my show, The Music with Meaning, well, you're just going to hear Linda again sharing even more about her amazing life and her love of music. You're going to hear some truly beautiful music. But before we get going, let's open the show with Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Linda Wharton into the psychotherapist chair on this edition of Real People. Linda, welcome to this crazy little program. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Delightful to be here. The chair feels very comfortable so far. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Listen, I think many of our listeners will already know who you are. You're a well-experienced naturopath and acupuncturist. You've been a health researcher. You are the recipient of the 2008 New Zealand Health Industry Distinguished Service Award. Wow. In recognition of your outstanding contribution to natural health as an author, journalist, and public speaker. And I think your latest book is called Wellbeing. Is that correct? Well, yes, latest, but it was quite a few years ago and it's out of print. It was many years ago. So I do have uh, three women's health books, but unfortunately all out of print now. I've been around a while, Jerry. <laughs> well, and, you know, as many people will know you as the person that set up and leads the Health Forum New Zealand and that has been doing stunning work in um, telling the truth about what is really happening to Kiwis and their health. Is there anything you want to add to that introduction, Linda? Oh, that's quite an intro, isn't it? Um, maybe that I am the mother of two beautiful daughters, the stepmother of four more daughters, a wife and grandmother to seven children, grandchildren. Wow. Seven grandchildren. What what a wonderful, what a wonderful yeah, every thing. Every one of them a blessing. I love being a grandma. Yes, I was uh I've I've got one grandson, and when he turned up, I was absolutely knocked flat on my back. I had no idea becoming a grandparent would change me as much as it did. It's actually really profound, isn't it? Because what I didn't anticipate and understand was that when I held you know, each of my grandchildren for the first time, the love rush you get is the same as when you hold your own child. It's an immediate, well, it was for me anyway, immediate bonding and feeling of protectiveness and huge love. I didn't I didn't anticipate that as a grandparent. I thought it would be different. Well, I was in the UK still when my grandson was born and I didn't see him for a year after he was born. And I remember holding him for the first time at Manchester Airport of all places oh. and and in the you know in the parking lot of Manchester Airport oh. uh, I, I, you know the most romantic spot and you know spiritually you know magnificent place to be and in this dreary sort of environment i i was just i was in heaven for a moment this beautiful mm. 
I was a blubbering wreck. You know, I was just sobbing. Oh, that's it so was... beautiful. It, it is a very profound experience, isn't it? When you're, I guess, you know, we're genetically programmed to have that feeling of an incredible protectiveness towards our bloodline. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, Linda, you are here to sit in the psychotherapist chair. And this program is really all about how we understand what makes us tick, what gets us out of bed in the morning. How do we manage and deal with the traumas that life come across? And I suspect in your world, you have had to face extraordinary traumas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do in your day and what you come across and just a little bit really about your life at the moment. Sure. Okay, Jerry. Thank you. I guess my life in a way, in terms of my work, has been a life of two chapters. One was 35 odd years in my clinical practice as an acupuncturist and naturopath. Um, and I have now closed my clinic um, and retired from that because my full-time job two and a half years, nearly three years ago, became the work I'm doing now, which is the Health Forum NZ. And that came about really because of that background I have as a health researcher and a writer, as well as a clinician. And so I watched the unprecedented unfolding of the development of the COVID injections um, and the use of the mRNA platform. Um, I watched it with kind of mixed feelings like intrigue because this was you know life-altering science in the making but also great reticence and a sense of trepidation because of what I knew about the technology you know from times past um so I started a little Facebook group uh when the rollout started here in New Zealand because I thought that somebody would also have feelings of um alarm about what we were seeing with the rollout. I had watched the adverse event databases, um, especially in UK and America for the few months that they were ahead of us. Uh, and I saw some things that seemed unprecedented compared to traditional childhood vaccines that I'd watched before. Um, so I waited for somebody to speak up. Nobody did. So I started this little Facebook group and I had no idea what I was doing that day. It was literally a platform just to put voices uh, from around the world that were starting to express concern. You know, scientists and epidemiologists and immunologists, some brave early people that were concerned about what was happening. Um, and this preceded the development of NZDSOS, the New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out with Science. So at the time I was seemingly the only person sticking my head above the parapet in New Zealand and because of that, once the rollout started here and we started to, you know, accrue the same huge numbers of people with vaccine injury, injection injury, because it's not really a vaccine, but gene therapy injury, um, they had nowhere to go. And so word quickly spread about this little tiny corner of the Internet on Facebook of all places. Um, we lasted nine months before... We were censored out of existence, and during that time, we grew from one member to nearly 60,000 members, uh, and I did the data analytics. Predominantly, they were Kiwis. There were about 5,000 members from offshore, um, and the rest were New Zealanders, and they were 
people who shared my concerns. They were people that came to the health forum to uh, to get access to the kind of information that simply was taboo in New Zealand. Um, and I'm not talking about, as Sean Plunkett would say, cooker stuff. I'm talking about, you know, genuine like uh, peer-reviewed or um, preprint science. And then, of course, we became a safe, compassionate, caring community for the actual vaccine injured. And then we had thousands and thousands of Kiwis who were mandated out of their work because they said no to the injections. So they joined us as well. And that's the early days of the Health Forum, um, the Facebook group. We were taken down. We kind of fled to free speech platforms like MeWe and Telegram. And now for the last eight months or so, I've been devoting a lot of time to building um, a big following on Twitter, now called X, because uh, it is very much a global platform. Um, and I, I love it. I'm really enjoying my time over there. Wow. That's a pretty breathtaking story, Linda. And I think that you are you must have come into contact with very large amounts of trauma. Would that be an accurate assessment? Oh, uh, un unimaginable amounts of trauma, Jerry. I mean, the ordinary people that aren't sort of living in, you know, this little world that you and I are aware of, they've just got no idea of the immense degree of suffering, the severity and the number of New Zealanders who are affected, their health has been affected. So yeah, huge amounts of trauma. And in the last week or so, I think this is the elephant in the room we probably ought to be talking about, at least give a mention to, is the whistleblower Barry Young and what he has yeah. what he has shared. I wonder, you know, whether what he is sharing fits in with what you've been seeing over the last few years. Well, it's interesting. I I actually have great admiration for Barry. Uh, you know, I mean, he's an unusual whistleblower in that he he set himself up potentially for prison and declared his try, true identity at the same time, which a lot of whistleblowers don't do. You know, they, they divulge the information but not their identity. So I have a lot of admiration for what he's done. He hasn't transgressed people's medical privacy with what he's done. Um, not in terms of the public release of the data anyway. And, you know, what I decided right from the beginning, I don't have the data. I haven't downloaded it myself. There's probably not much point in me having the data because I'm not a statistician. I don't have the, you know, the, the knowledge and the experience to actually analyse that data. But my understanding, certainly of what Steve Kirsch is saying and his team has analysed the data, um, it, you know, basically he's saying that there is an unprecedented excess mortality and that we have to seriously look at COVID injections as, you know, as being a cause of that. And it's absolutely what I've been witnessing in New Zealand for the last three years. Um, many of the people that contact the Health Forum are people with stories of loved ones who have died um, unexpectedly, you know, a short period or maybe even a longer period, you know, maybe they've, uh, they were healthy, they took dose one or dose two, they developed very quickly, you know, chronic disease that they'd never experienced. And then within a couple of months, they, they died. So there's, there's a, a longer progression to some of the deaths, but they've got an unusual nature. 
and then others are very very fast you know we've got had reports of death on the same day um the same weekend within a week um so yeah that whistleblower data very much backs up what our empirical experience has been with reports from the public this isn't really um what we're focusing on today but i think it would be um remiss not to at least you know shout out to anyone else who is uh, willing to speak out the truth in still working within the health organizations here in New Zealand. But I think is every possibility that Barry may have opened the floodgates and that we may see some kind of a turning point in truth. At least that's what we're hoping for. But I, I think you, your work, and certainly in your close collaboration with New Zealand doctors speaking out with science, I would have thought that Aside from official statistics, you are the person who holds more information and has experienced more information and has probably accessed more information on a anecdotal, personal, individual level than probably anyone else in New Zealand. Would that be a fair accusation to make? I I, I think I agree with you, Jerry. Um, you know, I'm not a doctor. Um I'm not an immunologist, a cardiologist. Obviously, all of those people are seeing vaccine-injured people, whether they recognise it or not. But what I am that fits your description is the person in New Zealand with the greatest grassroots, you know, right down at at, at the person level, the greatest grassroots contact with vaccine-injured people in New Zealand. I mean, look, I can't quite comprehend how you have managed to handle that. And that's why I think it's going to be such an interesting chat we're going to have today, because I think many, many people will be interested in how you handle um, dealing with that much trauma. Look, I was one of possibly the only psychotherapists in the whole of New Zealand offering um, when there was a, a two week window when people could get exemptions from their mandates. Yes. There was yes. a phony war for two weeks Qualified health professionals could give exemptions. And yeah. my wife and I spent, where well, she spent all, you know, we spent 18 hours a day for about three weeks. She was yeah. uh, dealing with emails and setting up appointments. I was going on to appointments. I was identifying whether people were in mortal fear to the injection. And if they were in mortal fear, I said it would be absolutely unethical to for me to do anything other than issue them with an exemption on the basis of both their mental health and their physical safety. Until we end up in a, a totalitarian state like in Hitler's time when Mengele thought it was okay to inject people with things that would kill them, um, I felt that we were not quite at that point. And therefore, I, I was literally one of the only psychotherapists. I haven't yet heard of any other psychotherapists. We were inundated. And for just three yeah. weeks, I interviewed something like 150 people oh, and, and heard their stories. Wow. Um, and once we'd given them the exemption, which was then gaslighted and taken out from them, it was yes. taken away from them, which was a double horror. That was like a double psychological whammy. First, they were had their jobs threatened. Then they were given hope. And then that was smashed. Um, yeah. And what they did, what that did to me is it made me so enraged. I became politically active at that point. At that point, they had the reverse effect to what they were hoping, I think. And then yeah. I was a coordinator down here in Wanaka for the local Voices for Freedom group. And we had a fab group doing great things, still is. And someone else is now coordinating. But for during that period, um, I 
I listened to more stories. I was on my knees at the end of each day. Yeah. I was weeping I can at, at what was happening. And these are people who were being, uh, there were people who were going to be dispossessed of their houses. There were people who were going to, who's, who were going to be um, kicked out of the country whilst their own children would be able to stay. So families were literally being torn apart. People whose work visas would be removed because they no longer had a work visa or permit. And hearing story after story after story, and all the time returning back to spending time with them and saying, what have you got? What resources have you got to help you through this time? And you know what? The one resource that returned again and again, and I will keep shouting out for these three ladies until I've got breath, is the fact that there were local groups all around New Zealand, over 100 local groups, and I could say to them, have you thought of joining your local Voices of Freedom? There you will find safety. There you will find other people. There you will be heard. There you will find fellow humans who actually will care. And I believe in that time, mental health in New Zealand should hang its head in shame and it should and it should exonerate and award these three ladies the mental health award whatever mental health award goes in new zealand what voices of freedom did for literally hundreds of thousands of people was to create a safe space where they could have soothing and reassurance and fellowship i will never stop singing their praises and they don't know uh, i'm saying this and they don't pay me I'm to say it no, I know, Jerry. I'm t I'm totally with you and the three wonderful ladies and all their teams. I mean, they know how I feel about them. We will never know how many lives they saved because there were so many broken, dispossessed people that would have, you know, some of them would have seen no point or no ability to keep going if it hadn't been for the VFF communities that were there for them. You know, they're heroes. Yes. And they were, you know, on a, on a biblical scale, the people that would not take the vaccination were treated like lepers. Biblical lepers were the lepers in biblical yeah. times weren't allowed into towns. They weren't allowed into play. They had to keep themselves out. They weren't allowed anywhere near the churches. Well, it sounded just like what we were doing today. This was a biblical, biblical moment. And one thing that, you know, whatever a person's faith is, very few people can gainsay the incredible example of Jesus. And he just walked straight in amongst them and he spent his time with them and he healed them. And I feel that's what those three ladies did. They, in biblical proportions, they stepped in to a whole community that had been leperized. I don't even know if there's such a word as leperized. I've just made it up. There is now. There is now. You make sure you send this recording to those three wonderful women so that when they're having hard days, they can listen to Jerry and Linda oh. <laughs> reminding them how incredible they are. Uh, yes. Well, thank you for uh, sharing in that story. And in your case, I've said that, you know, it, it brought me to my knees, but th that is a tiny, tiny proportion of the amount of um, the amount of stories of trauma, of disillusion, of being disenfranchised, of so much psychological damage. Um, how did you get through that, Linda? How did you do it? Ah, oh, um, I think it's it's multifactorial. Some days I ask myself that. Um, I wasn't on my own, so so I had a team of. And we didn't set out to make it an all-woman team, but that's just what happened. I had a team of incredible women, um, many of them who had been in the 
vaccine injury space for years, um, some of them through harm to their own children with childhood vaccination or Gardasil vaccination. So they were they were the very kind of wise warriors that had years under their belt, whereas I was very much a newcomer to this field and I hadn't stepped willingly into it. You know, it wasn't at all what I anticipated, This all of this happening. So I had incredible support from my team. I still do have a team. It's a lot smaller now, but um, I've still got a lot of support around me. Um, the support of my family. So my mother, my father's passed away, but my mum uh, is, you know, my my greatest family cheerleader besides my husband. So, uh, you know, mum's very proud of everything I do. And she's actually quite clued up in this whole area as a result of lots of conversations we've had and videos we've watched together um and of course my husband so my husband Craig who uh you know is just a champion for this work um so so those are the sort of like the community around me that have held me up and underpinning that over and above that and underneath that um has very much been an internal and an, a, a sort of a spiritual knowing uh, belief and feeling that I was called to this work that I that my life experience up to now has somehow prepared me and called me to this time for this work um I don't know if that's a deluded thing or you know whether it's real but it's certainly what I feel at a gut level um and as part of that I I don't do this work in my own strength so I feel very connected to to God. Um, I pray. Uh, I, I believe in a divine or supernatural strengthening that has equipped me for the work that I do. Um, and I know it's real because, you know, there have been many days, not so much now, but in that intense year when we had the massive group, there were many days where I'd fallen to bed at night and I just felt completely wrecked, like I didn't know, you know, how I was going to sleep. And I would pray and I'd be asleep just in five minutes. You know, I'd just be like completely unconscious and I'd wake up and it was morning. So it was lifted off me somehow at the end of the day. Yeah, so, so a combination of wonderful human support from loving, caring people and and God wrapping me up and guiding me and keeping me safe. Wow, beautiful. Oh, that's such a lovely description. I had an image there of you just kind of going to sleep and just like the hand of God coming down upon you. What a lovely image. Allowing you to resuscitate, renew, refresh for the next day's work. Beautiful. And I had beautiful things. I had wonderful things happen all the time. Like, you know, I would get people write to me with prayers that they'd written for me. Um, and some of them were very powerful. And, you know, I would I would speak them aloud on my own. Um, and I had many, many Christian people in the health forum who would message me regularly and let me know that they were praying constantly. Their prayer chains, you know, of friends praying. And so there was a lot of prayer power going on. Wonderful. 
Tell us a little bit about where you come from. How on earth did you or your family end up in New Zealand? Tell us a little bit about the, the backstory of Linda Wharton. Sure. Okay. Well, I come from a, a very small family. Um, I've just got one brother who lives in Malaysia, and he is uh, eight years younger than me, and my mum and dad. And my mum and dad both were born and grew up in a little village in Yorkshire called Garforth. And they met each other when they were 18. They got married when they were 19. They had me when they were 21. And my dad uh, had spent years at Trinity College, which is an able college in UK, from I think about the age of 12. He, you know, grew up there training to be a navigator. And unfortunately, he he passed everything and he became a navigator, but his eyesight started to fade within a couple of years. And in those days, you weren't allowed to wear any kind of, you know, optical aids to be a navigator. So he had to leave the, the Merchant Navy, it was, and he joined the army. So my, my childhood, right the way until we came through to New Zealand when I was 15, my first 15 years of life were very mobile, living living in various parts of England, um, three years in Hong Kong, four years in Singapore, and then I was nearly 16 when we moved to New Zealand. Um, and I had a very I had a very happy family home. You know, I have I've I've got a wonderful mum and dad uh, who were devoted to us two kids, and we were just a normal, you know, normal family basically. Um, and I was very much into horse riding. I had a horse when we lived in England, so I loved horse riding. And when we lived in Singapore, I was really into competitive swimming, so I did that for four years. Um, and, yeah, life was good growing up. Well, I spent 28 years of my life uh, just down the road from Garforth in a tiny little town oh. called Hebden, Hebden Bridge. Oh my goodness! All <laughs> the other side, to Halifax from Garforth. <laughs> yeah, you know how to do the speak. <laughs> <laughs> we used to drive through Garforth every week, taking my daughter to play for youth teams at Leeds Football Club. So we used to literally drive wow. drive past that area every week. Uh, so that's a part of the world that I left to come here. Actually, so I think I waited until you had left the area before I moved up there. But uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, <laughs> oh, it's an amazing such place. A small world. It is. It yeah, is. I haven't been back to England. So I'm 62 now. I have not been back to England since I was 21. I don't know how that happened. Just lots of life got in the way. Um, lots of life. And now I'm longing to go back. I feel, you know, like a real urge to go back to the home of my ancestors and revisit the places of my childhood. So I'm sure I'll make that happen in the next year or two. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So, Linda, it sounds like, you know, a very stable, it, there was a lot of movement, you were travelling around, and would it be fair to say that you're doing a fair bit of travelling these days? I am now. I Yes, uh, Craig and I decided six months ago that we were going to actualise a dream that we've had for a long time, and we were going to move into a caravan, we put tenants into our home, and we didn't have, you know, a great structured plan, we just wanted to go where we were led, just sort of go where the wind blew us, where the opportunity led us, 
and move into community, you know, meeting health forum people. I knew that I wanted to do events and speaking, uh, which I have done in the last six months. Um, we went it over in the Nelson area and I did five events down there, which I loved. And it's been it's been fabulous. We're both gypsies. Potentially Craig's even more of a gypsy than I am. And we love um, the not knowingness of every day, waking up and just thinking, oh, what will happen today? Where will we go today? Who will we who will we meet today? So and we're very lucky. We're in a comfortable caravan. It it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel like a poor second option. It it feels it feels like a privilege. Wonderful. Well, I do hope the wind will blow you down Wanaka Way and we can meet in person. <laughs> For sure, Jerry. We're coming back to the South Island. Uh, we'll be down there again by the end of January and then kicking off actually touring around. So I'll make sure I come to Wanaka. So, look, your early life was travelling up until a certain age, up until about how old were you when you got to New Zealand? Well, I turned 16 a couple of months after we got here. We did do a bit more traveling. We had a couple more postings in New Zealand before we finally landed in Auckland, mm. uh, you know, for all these decades since then. Um, so, my, I mean, my growing up was interesting because it, while I had the strong sense of stability within my family with a devoted mum and dad, there was nothing in, else in my life that was stable. It was when I think about my childhood, it was all about endings and new beginnings because the the nature of being a military child, most military children are sent to boarding school because of that nature of life. Mum and dad wanted to keep me with them, and I'm really grateful for that. But it um, it was challenging when you're a child saying goodbye to all of your your best friends that you love and your school that you love and travelling off to some place on the other side of the world and trying to fit in to a community that's already formulated, you know, dropping into a school, not at the start of a term, but midterm, when all the friendship groups were formed. And so it taught me some skills. It taught me a lot of resiliency, which I didn't realise at the time, but now as an adult looking back, I think that that life I had, I think it probably equipped me in some ways for what I'm doing now. You know, it made me um, sure of myself and able to converse with people that I don't know. Yes, you would have had to break into existing friendship groups. You would have been like the spare penny. You would have been yeah. the outsider. And they do say that a lot of people who have stepped up or move into healing work or therapy are often outsiders for a variety of reasons that there are reasons why people that like that pay attention that like to observe people's behavior to become you know fairly analytical of what groups of what I can just imagine you as a as a teenager for example trying to you know I mean teenage years are tough even when you've got you know buddies oh, you've known for years but are. coming in coming in as a outsider and having to break in and all the the little groups trying to keep themselves together the little cliques you know I actually think that our move from England we were living in Salisbury beautiful Salisbury Salisbury Cathedral beautiful and I was going to a girls grammar school it was all very lovely and British 
and dad left the UK army, joined the New Zealand army, because at the time, this was, when was this, mid-70s sometime, 76, 77, the only people that were being allowed into New Zealand were army, uh, to join the army, or colour television technicians. So we got in through the army door. Um, But it was the most massive culture shock because we went from a beautiful home in Salisbury and I used to go to this big, massive Victorian girls' grammar school in a big red brick, you know, sprawling Victorian building. And we were posted to Linton Army Camp in Palmerston North. Uh, Talk about culture shock. My mum and I cried every day for a year. It was just the most massive shock. And I was sent to Palmerston North Girls High School. So from a very proper British girls' grammar school with a massive, like, I don't know how many hundred years of tradition, to Palmerston North Girls' Grammar School, where um, I've got to say I just did not fit in. Um, This was nearly 50 years ago, right? So the girls were pretty scary. They were not like any girls I knew back home in England. They were pretty... You know, they're pretty strong, staunch, pioneer, tough girls. And I just didn't fit in. Um, And I didn't make any close friends. I just kind of survived my time at at that school and hated it. So you painted yourself as this fading, pommy, kind of lily, (laughs) wilting in the New Zealand sun. Oh, no, I'm sure I had strength in me, but I was a young girl. I was, you know, like you said, teenage years, they're challenging, and and it was just a huge culture shock. And I can remember, um, I think we I think we moved there in the winter. It was freezing cold, and I can remember going to Palmerston North with my mum and dad the first t- for the first time in the winter, and we saw people walking with no shoes on and bare feet. And we'd never seen that before, especially in the winter. And that was the start of initiation into Kiwi culture. I'm fully initiated now after 48 odd years. <laughs> well, and there was I doing the reverse probably a few yeah. years earlier than that because I I arrived in the UK, you know, refusing to wear even sandals, you know, and at the age of five, walking to school and my mother saying, no, you've got to put on these sandals. And in my kind of, at then I would have had a broad Kiwi accent. Um, I I refused. And then she eventually made me and I had to, I had to put these shoes on and then we'd wave, she'd wave me goodbye. And it was in the days when children were safe enough to walk to school, you know, and um, we get to the top of the road, turn the corner and stop. And me and my other two brothers who are also very Kiwi-fied. <laughs> Shoes off, Shoes into, off. The, into the satchel, walked, walked to school bare feet, you know, and then and then get into the classroom and the teacher going, Jerry, you where's your sandals? And I go, ah, oh, sorry, miss. Must have left them at home, miss. And she said, shall we just look in your satchel in a very patient, kind way? Yeah. And she said, oh. Look, there they are. Let's put them on, shall we? <laughs> this went on oh, apparently gosh. for this went on for like a year. I, I refused to buckle under for a long time. So there's an so early we rebellion. had sort of mirror. We had mirror experiences, didn't we? We crossed <laughs> continents and countries and had mirror experiences. Yeah, yeah. And when I, you know, in my my work in the UK, I spent a great deal of time training massage therapists. The, the great delight was that. 
I we always worked with bare feet to be properly grounded in our body work and our massage. Yeah. So outside my training rooms, we had big hotel rooms. You see like a hundred pairs of shoes outside, <laughs> like some mosque. So you didn't know, but you were training for that when you were five. You didn't realize that that was to come. You chose the perfect profession that you don't need to wear shoes. Well, me and the other trainers, we used to take great delight in walking across the car park from the training room, the banquet halls where we were teaching, to the to the restaurants to have something to eat, walking along in our bare feet, and all the English people looking at us in horror, but we just didn't. Once yeah. once you get out of the habit of shoes, you really don't want to constrict your feet. You know, they're, they're meant yeah. to be in touch. You know, many of my clients, when they arrive to see me, they see me standing on the lawn outside and uh, just grounding myself in bare feet in between my clients. I always give myself a little time for that so that I can, I can be a bit more, you know, grounded in my work. But listen, this is about Jerry Pives again. It's not really meant to be a show about me, Linda. It's meant to be about you. (laughs) (laughs) We're just having a conversation. I'm interested in learning about you. (laughs) Well, I'm enjoying our conversation immensely and learning about your arrival. So if you've just tuned in, you are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives, and I am talking to Linda Wharton. It's a great privilege to be talking with Linda about her life, about her background, about what makes her tick, what gets her out of bed in the morning, and how she deals with stress and trauma. Let's move on a bit and talk a little bit, if we might, about what influence you think your childhood has had on you. What have been the gifts from your childhood? I mean, I'm already getting a very strong picture of resilience, of despite all the moving, a stability, but there's a pain and a and a kind of a difficulty and a challenge there as a young girl being moved from place to place um, and, and all of that. And there's a gift of that, which is that you had to find how to communicate and, and that's look at what you do now. You go around, I've been to at least, I think, two, if not three of your talks. You're a very beautiful speaker. You're very genuine. You're very open. You're very natural. It's as if you are just arriving for the first time at a school and letting everyone know who you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, I love and, speaking. Yes. I, 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 I'm a communicator. I've always, I've always been a communicator. So even when I was, you know, at college, English was always my strongest subject. I, I always... I used to tell my English teacher always that I wanted to be a journalist and I did want to be a journalist. That was my passion. Um, I didn't get into journalism college when I applied when I was 18. They told me I needed to go away and mature a bit more. Um, And so then I decided to go to university and do a psychology degree because I was also really interested in people and, you know, how their minds and hearts work. Um, And, so I never went back to pursue the journalism in a traditional route, but instead I started my own career, my parallel career as a health researcher, writer, journalist, columnist. So so I became a journalist, but I was lucky that I got to choose what I wrote about. Um, so, yeah, so I love communicating. I've always been a communicator. And in terms of what did my childhood give me, um, it's given me a love of change. So I have an adventurousness in my spirit where I don't, I'm not resistant to new things, to, you know, to trying new things and starting new endeavors and making new friends, moving to new places, 
So I'm kind of light on my feet. And there's a good and a bad to that because, uh, you know, the the potentially the downside, depending on how you look at it, is that I am a rolling stone. And so even before we lived in the caravan uh, and even before I met Craig, I continued that sort of novelty seeking in my adult life. You know, I'd live in a house for a couple of years and then I'd think, oh, I feel like moving now for no reason, just that I wanted to just pack everything up and move. So it's been a life of a lot of change. And I think because of that grounding as a child and never having a permanence in relationships other than with my parents, when I look over the course of my life, I I don't have a lot of really long-term friendships. I tend to have chapters of friendship in my life. As I've changed, my friends have changed, and I've, I've sort of had seasons. Not that I've fallen out with them, but just that life's kind of moved forward and I've attracted new friendship groups. So I look at people, you know, who have got parties, 50th birthday parties, and they've got school friends, a whole bunch of school friends there, and I sort of feel a bit envious about that, but I've never quite managed to do that. Mm. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated that right from the off, you were interested in psychology. You were interested in understanding how people work. And that then led, I think, to not only your research and your the the journalism carrying on, but a a tremendously busy life, I think, as as a holistic therapist doing acupuncture and naturopathy. How did you fall into that little lot? Right. Well, that's really interesting, actually, that story. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, I was at university doing my psych degree. And in my last year of psychology, I got very sick with like a chronic fatigue type condition with immune dysfunction and chronic fatigue. And I almost chucked it all in because I was so sick. But I didn't. I kept going. And I had a part-time job at work calls in school holidays and on weekends. And one of the women I worked with hadn't seen a doctor for 25 years. She had uh, just seen this old, you know, one of New Zealand's first uh, naturopaths called David Duggan in Auckland. And she said to me, why don't you go see my naturopath for your chronic fatigue? And I didn't even know what a naturopath was, but I duly trotted along. And it changed the course of my life because having only been to doctors and specialists and tried various drugs to no avail, I went to see this naturopath and followed his recommendations and his medicine and very quickly started to turn my health around. So I finished my degree. I decided to do a one-year gap year traveling to UK and Europe. And during that time, I had so many synchronistic events where I'd find myself sitting on a train or in a cafe and I'd start talking to the person next to me and they'd say, oh, I'm an osteopath. And I'd say, what's what's that? Or, you know, I'm an acupuncturist. And I'd say, what's that? So I'd never had any exposure to holistic healing at all. So I travelled for a year and I came back to New Zealand that I absolutely knew that this was this was my life path. I wanted to be a naturopath. I wanted to work with people and empower them using my psychology, but then learning all the new skills to empower them and teach them and lead them onto a you know a healthy lifestyle and and 
wellness. So I did my uh, naturopathic degree, started practicing, um, had a health problem of my own that I sought help from an acupuncturist, and it was remarkable the results I had. And so I thought to myself, wow, imagine if I combined acupuncture with naturopathy and with psychology. So I went back to college. I worked part-time as a naturopath and I did my acupuncture uh, diploma um, for three and a half years. And then I started my own practice and, um, yeah, I had, you know, nearly 35 years in practice, always as a sole practitioner. And I did something very unusual. Nobody was doing it back when I started out, but I niched my practice and I focused almost exclusively on women's health. And so that that's what I became known for, working with women. Um, I did lots of fertility and pregnancy type work, but basically all aspects of women's health, you know, everything hormonal that you can think of that affects a woman. And I loved it. I loved my work. I, I was very busy. I worked full time. I just loved the women that I worked with. Um, I ended up over that period of time caring for lots of families of multi-generational. You know, I'd care for a woman, then she, then I'd help her have the baby, then she'd start bringing the baby, then the baby would grow up and have a child, and sometimes I worked literally across three generations. So it was it was a real gift. It was very special. What a beautiful work. What a beautiful gift to be able to help people and to do it with natural in natural ways to be able to help them without having to make um chemical or pharmaceutical chemical interventions that's really interesting yeah, yeah. so it seems like meaning for you really became helping others yes and right from a very early stage um, how early? Well, when I when I gave up on the journalism thing, I thought, oh, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting around doing nothing for a few more years while I mature. I'm going to go and do my psychology. And once I started the psychology, I thought, oh, I want to be a psychologist. I loved it. I loved learning how the brain works. I loved it all except the endless hours. It was very behavioral psychology at Auckland Uni. So we had so many labs working with pigeons and rats and skinner boxes teaching them you know if you press this bar 650 times on the 651st time a piece of wheat will come out you know all that operant conditioning stuff I didn't really enjoy that um so yeah right right from early on I yeah I just love people and I I wanted to be a part of people finding wellness and mental health and I guess partly because I'd known what it's like to, in terms of mental health, I'd known what it was like to feel lost and alienated and sad and experiencing grief with all of those changes in childhood. Yeah. Hmm. It's always amazed me why psychologists think that to understand humans, you need to study rats. But then I now think that by my, my conclusion to this is that they've studied so many rats that many have become like rats themselves. They've certainly <laughs> ratted, they've certainly ratted out when it comes to the psychological kind of 
manipulation that's been going on in the last three years. There's quite a few psychologists who are going to have a lot to answer for on the Day of Reckoning, I reckon. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I agree. My... The, the PSYOPs brigade. So a lot of psychologists have been gainfully or ungainfully employed for the last four years working for governments. You've mentioned, we've talked about trauma throughout this program, and we've got a few more minutes left. I just wondered if we could close, really, by thinking about what would you describe as the most, uh, we've talked about your health forum work, and and we've, we've given that, I think, a good amount of space. Yeah. But aside from that, Linda, in your personal life, what would you say, mm-hmm was the most challenging, most difficult, most traumatic time for you. You've mentioned some of the traumas in your childhood. I wonder when you give yourself a moment to reflect, what would you say was the most difficult time and what do you think got you through that? Well, I don't even need to reflect. I absolutely know um, the horror years. I know what they were. Um, My youngest daughter started on a path of substance abuse. And so the hardest time of my life was basically trying to save my daughter over a period of a decade. Um, While she was very, very ill with mental health problems and drug addiction. I'm very happy to um, let you know that she's 27 and she's been fully sober now from everything for seven years. Um, And she's got a little boy and she's a wonderful mum and she's got a degree in psychology and she wants to work with um, other young people with addiction problems. So life is a funny way of preparing you for your life path, doesn't it? So those were definitely the hardest years of my life. And um, I've got to say, compared to those years, nothing really comes close because it's a terrifying place to be in as a mother and no doubt as a father as well. When you have a child that could be taken from you at any time, you know, and every day you sort of think, and this went on for 10 years, so it's not like a child that get, gets a sickness for a few weeks and you think they might die and then they recover and life carries on. This is a chronic, seeping, open kind of a wound. Um, very, very traumatic. And what was part two? How did I survive? How did I cope with that? Um, not in any kind of heroic way. So, so I survive, I I clearly survive because here I am on the other side and I'm functioning and I think relatively intact, but I was broken for a long time through those years. Um, I had to do a lot of my own work, which I did through 12-step programs, through um, Al-Anon in particular, which is for families of alcoholics. Um, And I had to work really, really hard because of that unique relationship between a parent and a child. You know, you're just biologically primed in every way to give up your own life to save your child. You know, parents jump in front of moving cars and do everything because we wanted to save our children. So there's a lot of untangling of that to be able to come to a place of not, of your sanity and well-being not being dependent on whether or not your child is sober. Um. So huge amount of learning and 
yeah, and, you know, periodically I would go through phases where I was doing quite well and she was doing quite well and then everything would hit the wall again, um, you know, and there were multiple suicide attempts and it was just a really, really, really dark time. But, you know, the happy story for anybody listening to all that despair is if you're going through it and you've got somebody you love with addiction, um, never, ever give up hope that it that it can be different. They can change. My daughter was so sick, I thought she was the one that could never, ever turn it around. It was so bad. Um, and she has. So there is always hope, but they, they have to want to do it. We can't do it for them. We can't make them do it. We can't force them to do it. Uh, that's completely wasted time and effort for everybody. They have to want to do it. This is, in many ways, the New Zealand curse, I think. There is a curse of alcoholism and addiction here in New Zealand. Yes, I, um, it's, I think it, it. my understanding, my own view, if you like, is that it's a consequence of a culture that has had some really tough history, you know, whether you're pioneering and doing the backbreaking work of turning, turning the land into farming land, whether it's all the conflicts that have peppered the history of any country, actually, as, as different groups have met and collided and tried to work out how to coexist together. When there's been a lot of tough living, and you see, in England, that tough living happened around about the time of the Ang Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. Here in New Zealand, it only happened a couple of generations ago. Yep. So in order to survive those tough times, I think a culture has developed, which, which I would call a be strong culture, which is to just get on with it, to stiffen up, to suck it up and to get on. And of course, in that process, much gets, gets suppressed. I'm not talking about you or your daughter, um, but I'm talking about New Zealand as a culture. And I think the curse of addictions um, are the consequence of a tough internal kind of culture that has done extraordinarily well and is a brilliant culture. And, and I love this culture. I speak yeah. of this with real love. Having missed it for 58 years, I think I really appreciate it. But I, I think also what I'm noticing is the difference in a culture that is still fairly fresh and young. Um, and I think that the, the result of that has been that instead of dealing with and processing the difficult feelings of trauma and and, and whatever, um, what's happened is it's built up to so much that addictions become the only escape route that people yeah. find available to them. And oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree with all of that because I think about, you know, New Zealand culture and the terrible mental health record we have, the suicides, the addiction. Um, and I agree that we're very, very close to our pioneer roots. They're, you know, they're just over our shoulder. And so those kind of genetic traits of, you know, step up a lip and, and, you know, strong backbone and not showing or expressing vulnerability, um, not talking about feelings, just kind of swallowing it down and, you know, going to chop the wood or whatever you do. Um, it's very close. It hasn't had generations and hundreds of years to grow into something something else. I'm sure every parent can relate to the horror of what you're describing and going through that, and not just once, not just twice, not just a hundred times, but for ten years, mm. always having that pressure there. And 
And I think, you know, being able to find safe spaces to talk about our feelings, to recognize that humans are are made of soft tissue. You know, we're not we're not steel and grit, actually. We can't operate like machines and, and be yeah. tough and be, you know, we in the bodywork world, my life started with massage. I used to really hate those massage therapists that said, you know, bring your body for a machine, check, check up the machine like you check up your car. And it was I used to want to <laughs> rip down those little adverts, you know, they just they just made me judder. I think, you know, we are soft tissue. And I my career was in bodywork initially before psychotherapy. But, you know, what I what I realized was that when the tissue got soft, that's when we got well, that we are soft tissue beings and that our strength comes more from the softness and the pliability of something like the willow tree than it does from a rigid tree that, that can't bend in yes. the wind and therefore topples in Snaps. the in the. Mm. Exactly. And, and so this idea of sharing our inner journeys is not a sign of weakness. It's what makes us truly strong, in my opinion. I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I, I do. I share, I share your opinion. Um, it makes us strong. It gives us opportunity to inspire and encourage each other. Um, we learn from each other when we're vulnerable and we, you know, are witness to somebody else's suffering and their journey of strengthening through it. You know, I'm 62, my husband's 67. We talk about aging, we talk about mortality. Um, my husband's mum died last year. And so we cut, you know, we feel the vulnerability of impermanence that we're not here forever. But but we talk about Craig and I talk about the one of the beautiful gifts of aging is that you you've lived through so many life cycles and so many seasons that you are able when the hard things come you're able to to have a genuine awareness that it's not going to be that forever that you know you look back over the course of your six decades and you think of all the other hard times that you thought would never go and that this was your life forever and you realize that you know you've had so many other lives on top of that since then and that is that's a gift of aging because I think that's why so many young people take their lives when things are really hard. They haven't they haven't had that lifespan to realize that this is a season. It is going to change. Things will get better, um, which is the tragedy, of course, of you know of people leaving Earth when they're young and not not getting to know that. I'm rambling now. Well, if that's rambling. You know, let's have a lot more of it, Linda, please. <laughs> I I want to just give a shout out to all those professionals working with addictions. There's so many dedicated professionals out there um, working to help people through this very difficult thing called addiction. Um, yeah, really and are. I just wonder why, while we're talking about it, you, you mentioned Al-Anon, and I think many people are familiar with AA, and I, I absolutely admire and rely on and um, recommend AA as a yes. fantastic way to get through, to identify 
what is really going on underneath the addiction to really get to the cause of it and to really take charge again. It's just an amazing organization. But many people may not know about Al-Anon. It's the kind of lesser known brother, if you like, of AA. Could you, would you share with the listeners a little bit about what that is? It is. So, um, it's kind of a, a sister group to AA, and it's the place where family members and loved ones of the alcoholic go. Not They don't go there to talk about how they can stop their loved one drinking or you know what they can do to get them clean and all that. You don't talk about that. It's devoted to you finding your inner strength, your connection with your higher power, your understanding of addiction and it gives you back through a 12-step program gives you back your sanity to thrive if not at least survive and then hopefully thrive in spite of whatever your addict is doing whether your addict is drunk or you know on a blinder or saying that they're never going to give up or whatever Al-Anon gives you the tools to actually build a life outside of that so it's wonderful they do fantastic work well i'm hoping that the lines to alanon are going to be ringing like crazy as people recognize their need of support to deal with the addictions of the people around them and i think it's a it's a truly awesome organization and it reminds me of the need uh, what you spoke of really in relation to your own family with your daughter that there is this incredible balance, isn't there, between caring and also recognizing that this is their task. This is something that only they can overcome. So there has to be also this, we have to both be connected, but we also have to have the umbilical cord cleanly cut. So so we're not, as it were, enmeshed inside the, yeah. the drama of the addiction, but rather we can stand apart from it, still be there, but not to get drawn in. You probably can say more about that than me. Well, you expressed it beautifully. And, you know, like I don't want to give a false impression You, for myself as my addict was my young, you know, my young daughter. Um, you know, she wasn't even 21 years of age. So it's not like I could say to myself, oh, you know, I'm done with my parenting. She's 21. What will be will be. She was young. Um, so even when you go to Al-Anon, I loved the fellowship and the support. But walking every day, finding that balance between my own sanity and where the boundary was between my own sanity and not abdicating my role as a mother, you know, it was a balancing act every single day. And I didn't always get it right. And that's what Al-Anon's for. You go back to another meeting and you talk and learn some more and get some more support. And then maybe you do it differently next time. Or not. <laughs> for me anyway, it never got to the point where I was completely free of pain. It was. I, it never got to the point where I could look at my daughter suffering and think, oh, well, you know, that's I love her, but that's her life journey and this is mine over here. So the heartstrings were always there. It's just that I learned I learned how to have times, lengthy periods of time where I could actually bring joy into my own life in spite of 
and how I learned how to self-care because I completely lost the ability to care for myself, being totally outward focused on her survival all the time. So there's no easy fixes, but out of all the various things I tried in that journey, the 12-step program was the most effective for me to um, rebuild a life that was worth living, even when my daughter was still still unwell. Oh, that is such a wonderful insight into what is, I think, one of the most painful experiences that many, many New Zealanders are dealing with. So, yeah. you know, that support Too of the many. fellowship, the structure of a well-proven, successful method of dealing with things, the 12-step program and the support of an Al-Anon group. Some great ideas for people who may be lost, who may be wondering what on earth to do. And even if mistakes have been made in trying to deal with this difficult problem, having a group to go to that will understand those mistakes, that will understand how tough yeah. it can be, that in itself is profoundly healing. And and one thing I'd like to say to anybody that's listening that you know this is resonating for because they've got a loved one uh, who has got addiction problems, and it doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs, it could be all sorts, it could be sex addiction, porn addiction, work addiction, money addiction, buying things addiction, it comes in all different forms. One thing I'd say is um, addiction can touch everybody from every walk of life, every educational level, every socioeconomic race, creed. It doesn't discriminate and there is no shame in it because people feel very shamed, not only the addict, but you know, the circle of collusion around them often gets quite paralyzed by shame and stays very isolated. Um, so quite early on with my daughter, I made the decision because, like I said, I am a communicator and a writer and a speaker. I made the decision early on that I was not going to keep it hidden. I was going to talk about it. Um, and I did. And what happened when I did that, I was active in a church and I would share with congregation. And what happened was people that I'd known for a long period of time that I had no idea that they had somebody close to them that was an addict, they would share with me. And they would say, oh, wow, you know, thank you for talking about that. Um, you don't know, but this has happened to me. And it just, un it unlocks, it it casts off the shackles of isolation and shame when you talk about it. And in some rather remarkable way, Linda, that brings us full circle to... <laughs> yeah to you now providing a space for people to talk about injury, to talk about what is not allowed to be talked about still, they're not, not going to get recognised, they're not going to get ACC. Um, here you are, and I believe you are building, you haven't mentioned this yet, but you are building kind of support groups. Have I got that right? Yes, yeah, so um, not just the Health Forum. We've been working with the Died Suddenly group from Facebook um, and NZDSOS and Nurses for Freedom have had a lot of input as well. And we've started this organisation uh, called VIPS, Vaccine Injury Peer Support. Um, and actually, we've been inspired by the kind of the 12-step programme, not so much that we don't have a 12-step programme, but just the way the meetings are set up, where there's fellowship sharing, you know, where there's attentive listening from the circle while one person speaks, um, and whether there and where there's peer support. So we've set this voluntary organization up with peer facilitators who are not there to 
heal you. They're not there to tell you what to do. They're there to hold a safe space and hold a safe meeting for vaccine injured people to connect with and support each other. So um, that's called VIPs. You can find that on Facebook. If you can't find it, you're welcome to write to me. Um, Jerry, you can put my email address underneath the interview. People are welcome to contact me about anything I talk about. And they can easily find that just typing in Health Forum NZ, can't they? Yes. Yep. You can um, You can find our website and communicate with me through there. It's called thehealthforumnz.co.nz. Thank you, Linda. Linda Wharton, for sharing your life with us, sharing your story with us, and sharing your great wisdom based on a life spent dealing with trauma, helping others through trauma, helping people in their health. A beautiful life, a life I would suggest that you probably won't be proud because I don't think you do pride very much, but from where I'm sitting, you deserve uh, to be feeling, you know, to pat yourself on the back for a beautiful life. Uh, just know that there are many people who hold you in enormous high esteem, as do I. Linda Wharton, oh, thank, thank you. you for spending time with me in the psychotherapist chair. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think I'll stay in this chair forever. I've loved it. Thank you, Jerry, so much for inviting me to be your guest. <laughs> You're listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives on RCR Reality Check Radio. The first segment is where Jerry explores their past, their present, what gets them up in the morning, what's influenced them, and what makes them tick. In the second segment, you'll hear Jerry give some useful little tips and stories that can help us navigate through the tough times in our lives. And in the third segment, you get music with meaning. This is where Jerry's guest describes the arc and the pieces of music that take them right back to those special times in their lives. So listen live to get the full musical quality of this show. Tune in on Tuesdays at 1pm or hear the full replay at 10pm. You can also catch Jerry during the weekend replays on Saturday. And if you know anyone in your local community who's an inspiration to you or contributes and makes the life of your community better, a hidden gem, an unsung hero, we're not interested in the rich and famous, we want real people, we want to have people from your community, local people, people that make a difference. Send us their details and your reason for nominating them. And don't forget, you can contact Jerry by texting 2057 or by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio. Wow. So how interesting was that session with Linda Wharton? So valuable to learn just how one of New Zealand's most courageous women, most courageous therapists, someone who has offered help and hope to thousands of Kiwis, keeps herself upright, despite facing an avalanche of trauma every day. So if you want to pick up from some of those gems we got from Linda, stay tuned as I reflect on that session and go even deeper into ways that we all can process trauma. So I'm going to share a wonderful story about Carl Gustav Jung, one of the forefathers of psychotherapy. And then I'm going to share with you a very simple model that can help us easily understand trauma. And then I'm going to share a little bit from my own personal story 
and how trauma affected me and how I learned to heal from that trauma. So there's the menu for you if you stay tuned. An inspirational young story, possibly the simplest trauma model on the planet, and a story about how I recovered from trauma. All that in no more than five or six minutes. <laughs> but first, let's listen to Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings to get us into a reflective mood so we can enter into the right space to explore the tools that can help us all on this magnificent journey called life. So what reflections can we take from that session with Linda? Well, I think one of the main themes of that conversation, and there were many, many gems in what Linda had to say, but one of the key themes was the importance of facing and embracing the traumas that we go through and getting support and learning how to talk our way through and process the traumas we go through. And these traumas, the tough times in our life, well, it's not the trauma that actually defines us. It's the meaning that we make and the learning that we get from our traumas. Very often, it is the traumas we go through that enable us to build new understanding, gain greater wisdom, and get new insights into life, ourselves, and other people. In other words, in the middle of really tough times, it's valuable to remember that it is these very difficult moments that can become a doorway that is opening for us. And this reminded me of a great story I heard about Carl Gustav Jung, who was one of the great founders of psychotherapy. He was a student of Freud, but I'm not going to go into the history of psychotherapy today. I've done that on a previous talk. But this story about Jung has stuck with me for more than 40 years. What happened was Jung lived in Switzerland and his neighbour, who he hardly knew, one day knocked on his door. And it was a weekend. And I think the neighbour sort of knew that Jung was around at the weekend. And Jung opened the door and his neighbour said, are you... Are you, a, are you one of these psychological fellas? And Jung sort of probably fairly humbly said yes, despite the fact that he was probably one of the most famous psychotherapists in the whole world. And he said, yes, yes. He said, well, the neighbour said, can I, can I talk to you, please? And Jung said, yeah, come on in, come on in. And he took him into his kitchen. They sat down and he made him a cup of tea. And he said, well, what's the problem? And then this poor neighbour told him that over the last week, he pretty much lost everything in his life. He he'd lost his wife, his house was going to be repossessed, his business had gone bankrupt, and his health had taken some incredible dive. I can't remember all the details, but it was a pretty disastrous story. And the story goes that at that moment, Carl Jung said to him, just wait a moment, just sit there at the table, I need to get something. Well, he went down to his cellar, and he came back up from his cellar holding this really dusty bottle of champagne. And he opened this champagne. And as he opened it, he said, I've been waiting for a really special moment to open this bottle of champagne. I've kept it for over 40 years. And I've been waiting for just the right moment to open it and celebrate. 
this neighbor looked at him like he was mad. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I've just told you some of the most terrible things are happening to me. And Carl Jung said, well, it looks like now is the best moment of your life to learn new things and to make new choices and that your life is really about to begin. And of course, what Jung was saying was that when things go bad, when things break down, when everything is no longer going smoothly, sometimes that means we are creating a situation for ourselves where we can open into a new place, into a new doorway. We can walk through a new doorway. And one of the reasons for that is that sometimes, even as grown-ups, we actually are operating under very childlike assumptions and beliefs, ones that actually worked and helped us survive in our families, but which literally rake us as adults because they're not how the world works. For example, one of the ways I survived in my family was always to be the very best. I had to really excel to be in any way kind of noticed. I write about this in my book. The trouble is, that amount of pressure on anyone meant that by the time I was a young man, I had driven myself to exhaustion. So by about the age of 25, my health completely collapsed. I was a school teacher, and I literally could not get out of bed. I could not walk anywhere. I had what was called ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is a very fancy name for saying they think they never knew. They think that the nerves are inflamed. In other words, we haven't got a clue. That's what ME stands for. I was actually one of the first patients at London's Royal Free Hospital, which invented the name of the disease. Basically, I had driven myself to exhaustion. And if we drive a mind and a body and a soul to absolute limit, then of course we break. And then we have to find out why we broke. And we have to go back to the beliefs that do not actually work in grown-up life. Now, the model I want to share with you is one that was created by Eric Byrne, the founder of Transactional Analysis Psychotherapy. And he summarized what trauma does to us with this script idea, this idea that we are following a story that we built up as a young child, but which actually doesn't work in the real adult world. And that's what we call script. And Byrne said, well, really, these beliefs about ourselves, like my belief that I had to really excel in order to be acceptable, these beliefs, are, if you imagine a stack of pennies, and as you go through life, you're putting more pennies on, and then you get a belief that you take on because it's how you survive in your family. And he says, imagine that belief is actually a bent penny. And then what happens the next day and the next year as you put more pennies as you, you go through your life is that that bent penny tips the stack and mostly you can keep going until you get such a, you get to a certain age and then that stack is going to collapse so basically with this simple model we can say what we need to do is go back to that bent penny that's the cause of what's going wrong and so when i got really sick with me i had to go all the way back 
to that bent penny, the one that said, I was not okay unless I worked myself to the bone. I had to go back. I had to spend time learning how to be kind to myself. In my case, that took 18 months. I just spoke it in one sentence, but it took 18 months of resistance, accepting the fact that how I operated in the world was basically pants. I had to learn how to accept support. I couldn't support myself during that time. And luckily, my wife's amazing parents supported me and gave me accommodation for all that period without a single question. Unbelievable. That wasn't easy to receive. I needed to learn to pay attention. So during that time, I wrote down my dreams. And then I spent time thinking about, well, if those dreams have a meaning, what might that meaning be? And just working it out for myself. I hadn't trained as a psychotherapist at this point. Above all, during that time, again and again, I found myself having to return to that wounded part of my childhood. The part of my childhood that I write about in my book, with an alcoholic father and a family that appeared absolutely normal on the outside, but was a disaster story on the inside. I had to find ways to reach and acknowledge and soothe the pain. During those 18 months, I often spent days listening to really gentle, soothing music. And very often I found myself simply crying and often I didn't know why. But it slowly dawned on me that I was carrying a lot of sadness, grief, confusion. And after that, and throughout all of my life, I must remember and return again and again to that very young part of me that was so hurt and so confused by what went on around me. In fact, that part of me has now become my greatest friend and ally in all the healing work that I do. That part of me sits there and gives me a way of understanding other people's pain. You see, I hate to break it to you, but our pain actually never goes away. Just like a wound never fully disappears. There's a scar that is left. And the scars that we carry are what shape our appearance, our personality, and ultimately define our course in life. So throughout the interview with Linda, we were talking about the importance of acknowledging and discussing and sharing the pain that we go through. And you see, talking about our pain and our trauma is how we reach back down to that bent penny and slowly begin the process of straightening it out so that we can move forward in our life. But it's never completely straight. There's always a wee kink in there that reminds us of all the learning and the wisdom that trauma can bring us. 
And just in case any of this has stirred you up, then stay with me as very shortly we're about to move into one of the most amazing ways we all have to help ourselves to process trauma, music. Music can get us right in touch with our truth and our emotional state. But before we move on to this very exciting third and final segment of Real People, my Music with Meaning section, where Linda is going to share with us the music that has been significant to her in her life, let's open up this week's mailbag. I really love to hear from you. So send me in your questions and any feedback that you have. It can get quite lonely here. So let me know how I'm doing. And please remember, if you know any unsung heroes or hidden gems in your locality that you would like to nominate, then send me their email in an email saying what they've done for your local community. And I will send them a simple invitation that says someone in your local community nominated you for this invite. And they can always say no. So let's dive in to this week's mailbag. So just four letters today in my mailbox. The first one, like the other two, most annoyingly have no name attached to them. Now, listen, I'm going to have to get really stern with some of you listeners. I'm about to say I'm not quite there yet, but I'm plucking up courage to say if you don't put a first name beside your message, then I'm just going to ignore you. I'll give you just another couple of weeks to learn this one, but I really do think that you could just give me your name. And it feels so much nicer to be able to say your name. But these are three anonymous messages, all of them lovely, all of them very heartfelt. So the first one says, hi, I really enjoy listening to Jerry and the psychotherapist chair. His conversation with Sandy Murphy spoke to my heart, a nice big heart sign. Yes, wasn't Sandy marvellous? I think every every guest I've had has been really open and has really opened their heart to sharing their lives with us all. What a generous gift, eh? And then another message, also anonymous, tut tut. Jerry singing is giving your heart a hug. Now, I don't know if she means Jerry singing is giving your heart a hug or Jerry... I just want you to know that singing is giving your heart a hug. I think the latter rather than the former. So I think this one is telling us that singing is giving your heart a hug. Love it. We do a local group sing for fun of it. I've joined and love it. You don't have to be good, but the fun of hugging through music and singing is fabulous. Absolutely no name. I couldn't agree more, Anonymous. Um, I think it's just so important to be able to do stuff together and of course once we start singing we're all vibrating our frequency rises our heart chakras just blossom and we're kind of shoulder to shoulder and we're joining in something together we're creating something that none of us can make on our own the sound of a choir is just quite something. And and in this week's Music With Meaning, you're going to hear Linda and I discussing precisely that. So do listen on. But yes, if you're down and out and if you're struggling with life, best thing you can do, join a choir. And then the third anonymous message, 
says, love your show, Jerry. Love your gentlemanly accent. Well, I want to say something about that accent. No name, oh, anonymous one. <laughs> when I arrived in England at the age of four, I was broad Kiwi plus a lisp. Can you imagine that? Speaking with a lisp and a Kiwi accent. And my mother valued and fought for our education. And she required me to do elocution lessons so I could control my lisp. Now, mostly it went away, but I was taught, you know, Middle English by this elocution lady. And for years I had to practice long sentences with all sorts of peculiar consonants and vowels in them. I, I was so traumatized by it, I can't even remember them. I don't want to remember them, thank you very much. But you know the kind of thing. So I had to repeat endless sentences that contain T's and S's and such like. Of course, as luck would have it, my very first girlfriend at the tender age of 13 was called Elizabeth. Now, if you have, a, if you have had a lisp to say Elizabeth and the, th and the S and the T and the Z, oh, that's a nightmare. And I remember practicing before I went out on my very first date with her. <laughs> so nervous. Practicing how to say Elizabeth instead of Elizabeth. Elizabeth. It all come out wrong. Now, mostly I get my S's okay. But when I give my courses, you know, there's there's all the students that know me avoid the front row because despite the sound of it, sometimes I've been known to spray the front row. So if ever you come to a talk or a workshop with me, don't sit in the front row, okay? And um, the part of the list was because when I was born, I had an easy life, didn't I? When I was born, I couldn't have it easy. So I had had a, I was literally tongue-tied. Maybe that's why I talk so much these days. But I was tongue-tied and I couldn't feed. So I spent the first four days of my, my life, among other things, practically starving to death until one very smart doctor just snipped the underside of my tongue, uh, which meant that I was free to suck properly. And then that meant that I could feed voraciously. Um, but then I lost, because my tongue was longer, <laughs> it kept going forward and I had the lift. So you can all imagine what fun I was as a young child. Anyway, the point I'm getting to <laughs> is that I was forced to teach this way and I lost my New Zealand accent. It would have gone anyway, of course, over all the time I was over there. But um, yeah, I, uh, I wish I could speak Kiwi. I really do. I love the Kiwi sound. But I've got my voice and my life has been amazing. I've been gifted so much and I am very happy to be here talking to Reality Check Radio. Now, the rest of the message was about Sandy's show, and it said that Judy Murphy, a.k.a. the mother of Sandy Murphy, has been outstanding in our Queenstown community, restless, brave, passionate, hardworking in our endeavour for the well-being of our country and children's future. Well, yes, I know Judy, and she is amazing. And if you'd like to nominate her for a spot in the psychotherapist chair, then send me a nomination. I don't want this just to be Jerry's mates, but yes, I'd love to interview Judy. And then we come to the fourth letter, and this is named. It's the only one named this week. And four is absolutely not enough. So get your pens out and write me an email. So this is from Nikki, and thank you so much, Nikki. Nikki has shared in a remarkable story, and I'm going to read it out in full. So settle back and hear a piece of real 
personal history. This is a little mini in the psychotherapist chair by Nikki. Thank you so much, Nikki. Hi, Jerry. I just caught up with your interview with Sandy Murphy and feel compelled to write as you touched on the subject of intergenerational trauma and family members who fought in the wars. My great-grandfather was killed on the Somme, she writes, which had a profound effect on my grandmother, who was 16 at the time. So 16-year-old grandmother losing her father at the Somme. That was me, by the way. Nikki goes on to write, My grandfather was gassed and suffered PSTD, as it is now known. Well, if that was in the First World War, Nikki, then it would not have been known as such. In fact, many, many, uh, many soldiers were shot for PTSD. So it looks like she had, it looks like Nikki had a grandfather and a great grandfather fighting in the First World War. And that can happen, can't it, in the generational patterns that our families have, presumably through her father's side. Now, the grandfather that was gassed in World War I ended up with alcoholism and attempted suicide. Yes, this is by her father's side. She says, brackets, my father, aged eight, found him with his head in the gas oven. So isn't that even so interesting that having been gassed in the First World War, her father found her grandfather with his head in the oven trying to gas himself. That is so poignant. It's a haunting image. It's almost like wishing that the original gassing had finished him off. So then we have Nikki's father having witnessed that at the age of eight. My God, to see your father trying to gas himself at the age of eight. And then Nikki's father lied, she says this, and my, back to Nikki, and my father lied about his age in the Second World War to escape the toxic home environment and join the Navy at 17. So Nikki's father had to escape a toxic home. And that household had been made toxic by the poison gas and by the shock and horror of war. So then her father, to get away from that, at the age of 17, lied about his age and joined the Navy in the Second World War. So he, she continues, he was captured by the Germans almost immediately and became a prisoner of war for the next four years. He had depression on and off throughout my childhood. Uh, Nikki, that's so tough to grow up with a depressed parent is like a shadow that no one talks about. It's like a often a secret, a secret suffering, isn't it? So she writes, Nikki writes, this family history was the motivating factor for me, not using the Vax Pass, which I was entitled to use, as I had two jabs, not because I was afraid of COVID, but because my daughter was in Canada and I wanted to see her. My next comment follows on from this as it relates to MIQ, the inhumanness of which still triggers me. Well, Nikki, I share that with you too. My wife and I spent our honeymoon 
in separate rooms in quarantine in Auckland. We were able to wave at each other out the window. <laughs> we had to get permission to go out and walk in the car park, guarded by security personnel. Back to Nikki. Apart from not being able to get back to England when my mother chose to cease eating and drinking, and also not being able to see my daughter for four and a half years, but the emotional damage for people stuck in MIQ when their relatives are dying, pregnant women not being able to return, and the conditions of MIQ must have resulted in trauma for many people. It is rarely discussed. I wonder if you see any of that stress in your practice, Jerry. Perhaps it is something you can cover at some time in the future. Well, yes. I mean, listen, if more people will write in and share their experiences. And then Nikki carries on. Lastly, I joined Voices for Freedom shortly after getting my second jab and just about when the mandates were proposed. I had an argument with my new neighbours about the mandates and was taken aback about the vehemence of their reaction when I said I didn't agree with them. Being part of Voices for Freedom was a lifesaver. But there have also been times when I have felt stuck in the middle of the strong pro and anti-views and new and old friends. I'm particularly thinking of videos that were shared online, anticipating people dying in the future as a consequence of the jab and people's views on shedding. I felt wherever I went for several months that I had to tell everyone I was vaxxed so they could stay away from me if they wanted to. In fact, for the last two years, I have socialised solely with unvaxxed people. And Nikki goes on to say, I'm not alone in the freedom community as far as being vaxxed is concerned, although we do seem few and far between and have been treading a fine line at times. This all takes an emotional toll. That toll is invisible as people are very good at putting on brave faces. Thank you for your programme. It's good to hear about normal people. Nikki. Well, bless you, Nikki. So much in this letter, not only the experience of people in quarantine, but also the assumption that is often made in the so-called freedom community, that everyone is unvaxxed who goes to these meetings. I, many of you know, I was a coordinator for Voices for Freedom, and it always made me very uncomfortable the way in which there was a tendency in our groups for people to, A, assume that everyone there was unvaxxed, and B, talk about those that were vaxxed as if they were mentally deficient. I found it very uncomfortable. And I personally know many people who were in Voices for Freedom and were vaccinated for all sorts of reasons. And I think in all of this, there is a real danger of what we call echo chambering and othering, people that don't agree with our views. And the truth is, we're all living, breathing humans. And no matter how well-informed I perceive myself to be now, it wasn't that many years ago that I was completely ignorant of some of the demonic and, frankly, evil and criminal behaviour that has been going on under the guise of government and authority. Well, 
I just wasn't that aware of it. I knew about it in the health arena because that was my arena, and I knew that the pharmaceutical companies were tantamount to the mafia and criminal organizations. And that, of course, meant that when this whole shebang got going in 2019, 2020, there wasn't a moment where I believed anything that was told to me about these experimental injections of gene therapy. So I think it's really important for all of us to talk to each person without assumptions, to find out who they are, just as it's equally important for people to accept that there are people in their community who were treated like second-class citizens, who were banned from cinemas and restaurants and were treated as if we were living in an apartheid. And that must be addressed as must also equally be addressed the way in which people have been hoodwinked, lied to, and psychologically manipulated. There is just the truth. There is just what happened. And there is also what continues to happen. And the one thing that all of us, I think, agree on is that never again should we fall asleep at the wheel when it comes to government, we should all be actively involved and watching and watching and demanding the standard of behavior and the transparency that will ensure that those in authority behave themselves. So thank you for those messages. I want more. I feel like a little four-year-old sitting at the dining room table, smashing his knife and fork onto the table saying more, more. <laughs> and please, please give me a name so I can talk to you more personally. And remember, nominate someone in your local community who's making a difference to the lives of those around them. Send in their details and your reason for nominating them to inbox at realitycheck.radio. So now, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to Music with Meaning, where Linda is going to share with us the music that has been most significant in her life. And so to really get us in the mood for this third and final segment of Real People, let's listen to the iconic Doobie Brothers playing Listen to the Music. So you've just been listening to the wonderful Doobie Brothers playing one of my favorite pieces, Listen to the Music. And we've got the wonderful Linda Wharton back with us to tell us all about her life in music tracks. So, Linda, welcome back. Thank you, Jerry. I'm excited for this part of the show. I love music. Well, that's great. So let's dive in and tell us what your first piece of music is that you want to share with us, your music with meaning. Well, the first track that I've chosen is one that represents when I close my eyes and think of my childhood and my life with my parents. We didn't have a theme song as such, but I remember whenever there was music playing in the background in our home, it was often Shirley Bassey. So 
Shirley Bassey, whenever I hear her sing, reminds me of being a child in, in my wonderful childhood home. And I've chosen This Is My Life by Shirley Bassey. Wonderful, wonderful. And just in case some listeners haven't listened to the interview, but I've just popped in, uh, I'm just going to say that I'm interviewing Linda Wharton, who has done amazing work with the Health Forum New Zealand and is herself an acupuncturist and a naturopath and an author. And so um, I'm just wondering if you can give a, a mini sort of description of where this piece of music takes you right back to, whereabouts geographically, what year are we talking about or what period of time? Just give the listeners an idea of where this takes you back. Okay, well, it's interesting because my childhood was an unusual one because I was the child of an army officer in the British Army. And so we were a military family. Therefore, when I close my eyes and think of my childhood, I think of all over the world. But in particular, I think of our four years living in Singapore. I was 10 to 14 years old and so old enough to really remember, you know, things like what music was playing in my home. And often it was Shirley Bassey. If not Shirley Bassey, was The Carpenters. So it was a bit of a toss-up for me whether to choose Shirley or The Carpenters. And, of course, Shirley has such an iconic and unique sounding voice, doesn't she? She's just like, you you just know when Shirley Bassey is singing. <laughs> Absolutely. She raises the rafters every time. And my dad in particular, um, I think Shirley comes from Wales. I could be wrong, but I think she does. And my dad in particular had an absolute passion for um, Welsh singers, you know, who always said they had an amazing set of pipes. And in, in particular... He loved Welsh male um, choral singing, along with Shirley, obviously. Well, there's a close connection there, isn't there? Because Shirley's got such a powerful voice, such a such a resonant voice. Um, and, uh, you know, when you listen to the Welsh male voice choirs, it literally shakes your body when you, you know, I've had the privilege to be there and listen to these Welsh singers live and you literally, the, the seat vibrates. It's unbelievably yeah. moving and powerful. It's incredible. And I, I inherited something very special from my dad. And that was that my dad, um, and he used to show me, he would have a visceral response to music. He would, when he listened to music that he loved, he would just get covered in goosebumps. All his arms, all the hairs on his arms would stand on end. And I, I've got the same thing. So I get really moved by music as well. And Welsh, Welsh choirs used to do that for dad. Um, and then in the later years, when he was an older man, listening to the soundtrack of Les Miserables used to really move him that way as well. So with this Welsh connection, did you say that your father was Welsh? No, he's not. Although perhaps somewhere along the way, we've, we, I know he had a Welsh auntie um, who I didn't know. But my both my parents were born and raised um, through to being the age of about 20 in Yorkshire. So I hail from a little village called Garforth, uh, about 12 kilometres outside of Leeds in Yorkshire. Thank goodness I didn't bring the accent to New Zealand with me. My apologies to any people from Yorkshire who are listening. It's a very distinctive accent, and both my mum and my dad do have, well, my, my dad's passed on now, but my mum does have a Yorkshire accent. Ibagum. <laughs> yes, that's it. Your blood. Ibagum. <laughs> 
Uh, so, so tell me, as well as the Carpenters and Shirley Bassey, when you were growing up, was did Engelbert Humperdinck ever appear anywhere? He did. Engelbert was there. Um, oh, Tom Jones There's, was definitely there. Tom Jones is the big one, isn't he? Tom Jones. Yeah. I was thinking of actually, I was thinking more of Tom Jones than Engelbert. Yeah, Tom Jones. Well, Linda, we're going to wing back to you know Singapore probably on some military camp when you were 10 to 14. And uh, we're going to go back to the sound of Shirley Bassey singing, This Is My Life. Wonderful. Shirley Bassey singing, This Is My Life. You're listening to the third segment of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And this segment is Music with Meaning. And we're listening to Linda Wharton share her life through music. So, Linda, that was Shirley Bassey. Now, what have you got lined up for us next as, a, as your second m- music with meaning? Well, my my second uh, absolutely incredible song that I chose is um, Then a Hero Comes Along, or When a Hero Comes Along, Mariah Carey. When I was 37 and I had a two-year-old uh, child and a 10-year-old child, um, my relationship unexpectedly came to a close, um, the father of my two-year-old. And so I found myself at a time of life that I hadn't anticipated, and that was as a single mother with two small children, um, basically no money, uh, a huge amount of emotional trauma because it wasn't my choice you know, for this to happen. And I used to, when my children went to bed, I would put this song on in my lounge I'd shut all the doors I'd have it up really loud and I would sing and I would raise my hands to God and I would sing the song and I would cry and it would just it would reinforce over and over again that there there really wasn't a hero coming along to save me that I was to be my own hero yeah so it means a lot to me this song wow what a moving picture you just painted for us Linda and I am sure many listeners can relate to times when they have been you know confronted with real challenges and I I just love that picture of you going down and putting this on nice and loud and and just singing your heart out and there isn't there something truly magical about music in this that that somehow music lifts us up and also brings out what is stuck inside sometimes. I don't know whether Uh, you would agree. Oh, absolutely. For me, it is my key. So I, my way of coping often in life is to be the strong one, to, to be the one that keeps the calm and the strength. And so what that means is that I can end up finding that I've locked a lot of my own trauma inside and the way, and so I don't cry a lot, um, but the way that I can get those tears to flow and get the emotion out is usually with music. That's the thing that unlocks my heart and the tears rather than touch, you know, rather than having a massage or having a counseling session. Um, the right music that just goes straight to my heart will do it for me. Music somehow touches the heart, it touches the release, it touches our it tells us where we are sometimes, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 it also, I mean, exactly the process we're doing here, it um music anchors you to to times and emotional states 
in life you know so I can I can think of these songs now and immediately be back there with the feelings I mean the feelings not not raw the way they were then because that pain is resolved but you know the intense kind of memories of that time come back with the song on that note what would you want to say to that 37 year old Linda knowing what you know now what would you want to say as she struggles as she's got these young kids what would you want to say to her or what do you think of her oh she was so young Oh, Jerry, she was so young. When I think back, I mean, I'm 62 now. She didn't know how young she was. She thought she, you know, was all grown up and had it all together and was very capable. But I I look back now and, you know, ageing, there's a lot I don't like about it. I don't like the slowing down and the, you know, stiffening up and not having the energy. But it's a profound gift, the wisdom that comes with ageing. Not always. It's not a matter, of course, that it comes with aging. But, you know, if, if if it is a life intention to grow wiser as you age, and it is a life intention for me, it's a gift. So I look back at, at Linda at 37 and, you know, I want to give her a hug and just tell her how much I love her and that she is going to be her own hero and this too shall pass. Beautiful. Oh, touching my heart, Linda. As we talk about this, how beautiful. So on that note, let's listen to the amazing and remarkable Maria Carey singing When a Hero Comes Along. So you've just been listening to And a Hero Comes Along by Maria Carey. And um, let's move on. So what's your next piece of music for us? Right. So next we're going to talk about romance. And both of my pieces of music relate to the love I have with my husband, Craig, who we're still very happily married. Um, We've been together, we will have been together 18 years this coming February and married 15 years in February. So my first piece of music is uh, Joshua Caddison. It's called You Will Always Be Beautiful in My Eyes. And uh, Craig and I, we met dancing. We met on a tango floor. I mean, how cliched can you get tango, the dance of love? And that's where we met in a tango uh, tango cafe in Auckland called Le Mans. It's now long gone, but that's where we met. Um, and we used to drive around the country once, once we were in a relationship together. We would drive off to tango festivals. Uh, particularly in Wellington. So that was a long drive from Auckland to Wellington. And we had a CD. Yes, that was before Spotify. We had a CD that we would listen to, Joshua Caddison, and our favourite track was You Will Always Be Beautiful in My Eyes. And then when we did get married, when it was time to sign the registers, is the song that we we had playing. And it's, it's about um, long-term love and just affirming that no matter what happens to you know, the physical breakdown of the body, disability, losing of looks, that love is in the heart and it, it will always be there, whatever we look like. Thank goodness for that is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite looking like I did 18 years ago, I have to say. Well, you look pretty stunning to me, Linda, so just oh, want you to know that. <laughs> We're going to listen to You Will Always Be Beautifully In My Eyes, by Joshua Caddison. And while we're doing it, I just wonder, you know, this image of you uh, driving around down to Wellington from Auckland, going to your tango 
uh, events, festivals were they? Tango festivals? Yeah, tango or? festivals. We used to have Wonderful. we used to have master tango dancers from Argentina used to come and teach us. Beautiful. It was great. Uh, and I want to say something about this. I wasn't going to, but I am going to now. <laughs> I want to say, I think meeting a partner dancing is one of the smartest ways to find out who you're compatible with. Ah, why do you say that? That's interesting. Well, because when you dance with someone, you learn how you're going to get along with being led or or leading you learn how you integrate and you synchronize together. And it's like, I believe the body carries, I know this because when I had an almost identical experience in that I found my current wife through dancing. Oh. And, and it wasn't as skillful as yours, I'm afraid. It was it was a very basic kind of, they call it Siroc. I don't know whether it ever yes. came to New Zealand. Yeah, so I we, learned, Craig and I do that too. Uh, well, I learned that. I learned that. And in my own upset at the break up of my marriage, which wasn't something I had wanted to break up. And in that marriage, I when I came out of it, I was so distraught that I started, I knew I had to get out and stop feeling sorry for myself, you know. So yeah. on the days when I wasn't looking after the children, because I had a 50-50 arrangement, I was really lost, you know. And, yes. and so I, I looked for, uh, for the first time in my whole life, I felt lost and so I decided to learn Siroc and I went dancing and used to learn these moves and then the great thing about Siroc is every person you went up to had to more or less say yes if you asked them for a dance <laughs> or else <laughs> yeah no it was, the, it was a really good culture it was a culture, it was the culture. Yeah. yeah and it was wonderful but what amazed me was how some women um, felt like I was dancing with a with a clothes horse, you know, clunking a piece of wood around the room, you know, yeah. and, and others just seemed to just be like fluid and liquid. And, and I was pretty sure I was the equally bad dancer in both occasions, but I was like, and then because my, my wife was actually a trainer in my, my current wife is actually was one of my trainers who I'd known for many years um, prior to my breakup. And while I, you know, for a good year, I'd be broken up. And then suddenly yeah. um, we had an end of course, and someone put on the music and I said, anyone want to dance? And she just said, Oh yes, I will. Well, turns out she was a ballroom dancer. She knew every, oh. she'd been doing, she was so good. And I, I swear down, we just, we just flowed, and this is in a training room. So there were all these massage tables around, wow. and we oh, just how wonderful. And, and I was completely gobsmacked because I'd never felt so in harmony with with any dancer before that yes. moment. And it was just like, yeah. So I know this is about you, and I'm I'm hogging the show here. But <laughs> no, I I completely agree with you. And and Craig, when I when I danced with him for the very first time, I he definitely did not fall into the clothes horse. Um, camp he was very much the flowing you know synchronistic dancing so we kind of noticed each other from the first dance really because of that yeah. that yeah. that gel on the dance floor and my the tango is such an intense and intimate dance isn't it oh yes it is <laughs> it's it's not the dance for you if you're if you're a little bit shy and body conscious and you don't want to get too close to your mate you know to your dance partner it's a very intimate dance it's incredibly intimate, and and what I've seen of it, it's incredibly intense. What strikes me is the intensity of the dance. 
Yeah. And it's much harder for the men. Um, they say it takes about six years of consistent tango dancing for a man to be a good leader, a good lead, whereas yeah. a woman can dance tango well, you know, well enough in three years because the woman is receptive to being led. It's much harder to be the lead in tango. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I'm I'm sure many listeners are going to be writing in about their dance experience uh, from this. <laughs> this will be great fun. But we we are going to listen. And did you ever dance tango to this piece of music? Then I think you we probably be... did. We we danced tango to just about everything. So I'm certain we will have danced to this one as well. And even more significantly, this was your the music played at your wedding when you signed the register. Yes. Yeah. Let's listen to Joshua Caddison singing, You Will Always Be Beautiful in My Eyes. So you've just been listening to Joshua Caddison singing, You Will Always Be Beautiful in My Eyes. And we're in Music with Meaning uh, in the psychotherapist chair with Jerry Pives. And I am talking to the wonderful Linda Wharton as she shares her fourth track of music. So this sounds like we've got another another romantic piece coming our way. Is that right, Linda? More romance, more romance. And wouldn't you know it, Jerry, it's the same man that triggered this, the choice of songs. So this is meaningful to myself and my husband, Craig, and it's The Rose, um, I think originally sung by Bette Midler. I don't know, maybe it was sung by somebody else before her. But the the one that has special meaning for me is the boy band singing the beautiful harmonies. Um, and when Craig and I got married, we got married at Hopetown Alpha, uh, which is a beautiful hall, an old, I think it was an old Greek Orthodox church originally in Auckland, in K Road of all places. Um, but beautiful venue. And when I walked down the, you know, the makeshift aisle down the hall, we played, we had the rose playing. So I, I walked to this track and it was about, you know, the rose is about um, love growing from a tiny seed and against the elements, um, you know, against the snow and uh, and thinking perhaps that you'd never have love again. And then the sun comes out, the seed germinates, and love grows again. So that very much was my story because Craig and I, we were a second marriage but for both of us. And we both had, you know, independently several years on our own and thinking that probably that was it. Probably we'd never have a chance of marriage again. So it was a meaningful track for both of us. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I think we're going to go straight into that track, Linda. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. We're going to listen to The Rose by Westlife. The Rose by Westlife. So I am asking Linda Wharton to describe different periods of meaning in her life in this section of the show called Music with Meaning. So Linda, what is your fifth track for us and why have you chosen it? Well, the fifth track, you asked me to choose music that represented a turning point in my life. And the turning point that actually came straight to me, although I've had a lifetime of turning points, but perhaps the most profound of late in the last three years was the uh, the life circumstances that catapulted me into what I'm still doing. And that is developing, you know, the health forum and all of the work with the COVID vaccine injured and mandated out in New Zealand. And it was a turning point because, of course, I didn't see 
a pandemic coming. None of it, well, perhaps some people did, but I certainly didn't. And the day that I started my Facebook group to share knowledgeable voices that were concerned around the world and to share science, I had no idea whatsoever that that was going to take on, you know, a whole life force of its own and become a huge movement in New Zealand. So um, my turning point was that, and I've chosen actually a worship song this time, and um, it's called Rise Up or We Will Rise Up. And I had never heard this worship song until one day I was speaking with um, a Christian friend of mine um, and sharing with her some of the hardships I was going through with the health forum and the challenges and feeling overwhelmed by it. And she just sent me this beautiful track, the, the very track that I've chosen to play today. She sent it to me and it just completely dissolved me into tears the very first time I listened to it. It was one of those, it's an, an anointed piece of music that just went straight to my heart and still does even today when I listen to it. Um, and, you know, it's about finding strength and supernatural strength by reaching out to, you know, your higher power, to, to Jesus Christ, to um, to God. And so it really speaks to me. And I played uh, for a long time the first year that I had the health forum. I, this, this was on my desktop and I would often start my day by playing this and singing before I started, before I opened the email inbox to, you know, 100 stories of death and destruction from vaccine injured people. This would get me in the right frame to deal with the day. I am just in awe of what you've done and how much pain you had to face and you were faced with probably more pain than any other person I can think of in New Zealand. Uh, when I heard about your work and how what happened as soon as you opened up that Facebook and, and how many people you got writing in and what you opened up to, it was like, how can she, how can she survive this? And I think I'm really interested in this bit here because a great deal of what this program is about is how do we cope? with trauma you know how do yeah. we how do we uh cope with you know what can only be described as evil at least in my language that, that can only be described as just pure evil and yeah. the fact that i think you know the listeners hearing that for you to before you could open up my god a hundred emails i'm I'm really moved by how you did that each day and are still doing that as far as I understand. And, oh. and to hear that one of the things you did was to, as it were, connect yourself spiritually, I think is really, Absolutely. really important. That, that Jerry, I mean, th thank you for all those kind, kind words of affirmation. I, I mean, number one, the health forum is not just me. Obviously, we're now down to a very small team because, you know, the, the immediacy of the crisis and the number of people being injected has, has quelled right down. So the team is a lot smaller. But one of my strengths were, were the amazing women that of their own accord joined me in the fight. You know, nobody got paid anything and we all worked incredibly long hours. So 
so that my wing women, we still have a messenger chat group. There's five of us in there, and they they're still who I turn to in the in the hard times. But over and above, you know, mortals that held me up. Um, all the way through, I have not done this work in my own power and my own strength. Uh, I could, I simply could not have done it. So um, I had a knowing right from the beginning that I was actually, it might sound a bit strange to some people, but I feel like all of my life experience up to three years ago uh, and, you know, everybody in life has challenges and hardships, and I'm no different. I've had some very hard things to deal with in my life along the way, as as we all do. But I feel and I felt that all of that, all of the healing work I'd done as well on myself and with other people, the training I had as a very experienced health practitioner, led me to that point, equipped me for this work, and I was called to it. I still believe to this day I was called and I have prayed and I continue to pray all the way through, God, if you want me to do this work, uh, lead me, strengthen me and protect me, show me. And and I have been, I've been incredibly protected and everything I've needed to do this work has always been there. It's, you know, I've put a call out and every call has been answered immediately. <laughs> So so this really speaks to me um, because, you know, we'll rise up uh, in in God's strength. And that's basically the way I do this work. I wonder if you remember, but the last time I saw you was when you were doing a tour across New Zealand with Dr. Mulhotra and yes. with Matt Shelton. And it was a tremendous tour that you guys did and and, uh, and it was really wonderful to be there but I don't know if you recall but at the end of that evening I never backwards in coming forward so I stood up and I asked the panel what they thought about the spiritual nature of what we were going through we spent the evening talking about the injuries and the science yeah. and everything and I asked you know what is the what is people's take on the spiritual nature and I think to a person everyone on the panel basically said the same thing, which is they felt that this was a spiritual war. Oh, absolutely. It's it's light and dark and, uh, you know, goodness and evil. Uh, it really is a spiritual war. And the way I think about it and the way I operate and the values I live by and the way I conduct myself online with my social media presence and in my interactions with people because I believe it's a spiritual war and there is darkness on the planet, what I try to do is shine my light so brightly that it it recedes, it pushes back the darkness because you can't vanquish darkness by, by pouring more hate and more low vibration on top of it. It, 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 just, it just augments and gives power to the darkness. So... I'm not always successful, but I try as much as possible to operate from a God space, for, you know, to be filled with light and to come from a higher vibration in the hope that that will maybe inspire some of those people or somehow energetically change some of the people and the actions that are coming from the darkness. And I'm one person, but if we all shine our light, 
you know, there's no place for darkness to hide, really. Beautiful. Oh, wonderful, wonderful words, Linda. Thank you. I'm just thinking, folks, you know, you probably want to get your hankies out for this next piece of music because <laughs> this is pretty powerful and pretty, pretty moving. So we're going to listen to Rise Up by Faithful. So that was Rise Up by Faithful, and the singer was Ellie Holocom. So, Linda, what an amazing piece of music, how powerful that was. And I really appreciate you sharing with us the role of faith in this basically very spiritual battle that we're all living through at the moment. And, um, yeah. yeah. It's really important, I think, for people to understand that to survive the trauma, we need more than just tools and techniques. You know, we need to get right with God. We need to know where the source of our strength comes from. What strikes me is that the times we're living in now, people are very lost because spiritual connection or connection with a higher power, whatever the higher power is, not everybody is a Christian, not everybody believes, you know, has Jesus as their saviour or, but whatever the higher power is, it's missing. A connection with higher power is missing in so many people's lives um, as they're locked in very sort of gross physical experience of life, you know, just being in a physical body and a physical incarnation and missing that that supernatural spiritual dimension, the higher power, um, that's what's missing. And with that, having gone, there were just lost people everywhere. That's my observation. I mean, you know, the incidence of mental health problems, obviously, you know, catastrophically worse after the last four years with the pandemic. But even preceding that, you know, the um, the kind of pleasure seeking and the pursuit of a materialistic life can only really bring you joy for so long. And it doesn't bring you peace. The peace comes from, you know, realizing the, the temporary nature of our existence on planet Earth, but my belief is the enduring permanence of our existence after this. You know, the our spirit, our essence goes on. I think living on Earth as it is now, to me, would be quite a frightening experience if I didn't have a connection to my higher power. And would you say that this is the most important thing in your ability to survive stress and trauma in your day? I think it is. I think it probably precedes everything else before I start with, you know, the more human experience things. I, you know, I have to say my my husband, Craig, is my absolute, he's my human rock. He, You know, he's just so supportive of my work. He helps me in every way possible with my work in terms of, um, you know, we share an office, you know, how do I download this? Can you do this? Can you put subtitles on this video? Blah, 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 blah. He's always there to help me. Um, driving me to events, you know, reassuring me, keeping me safe. He's been my bodyguard at some events. So he's my my physical human strength. But, um, you know, both of us take supernatural strength from a connection with God. Beautiful, beautiful. So what's your next piece of music, your sixth piece of music, Linda? 
Well, it's also another turning point piece of music. Um, and so we've just talked about the turning point of the Health Forum. And I'm kind of going a little bit backwards, the, the turning point of unexpectedly becoming a single mum and starting that whole phase of my life. One of the other songs that I would put on and dance and sing to was um, I Am Woman. I Am Woman, uh, Hear Me Roar. <laughs> So that's the next piece of music. And it's just, a, you know, it's a, it's obviously a feminist track. It's about, it's affirming my power and my strength as a woman that I'm invincible mm. and I can do anything. So that was meaningful for me when I felt far from invincible and I was not at all sure that I could live through that era of my life and cope with um, a busy business, no money and two children. But I did. <laughs> Well, Linda, I've already met three women who regard you as a true role model for them as young women, and oh, I know you'll be you'll be kind of yes. And I, you know what I think is that I hear a lot about your team, and I I see that there's a power in women, and of course every man on the planet is so jealous of woman's capacity to create life. That is just a mystery to us. How does that ever happen? And what a what an important part of humanity to support, to value, to acknowledge. And every good man that I know does that and wants to protect, wants to support, wants to honor women. But there's something more than just the fact that women, women are not thrown away after they've passed childbearing age. There is something about the power in a woman who's older, an older woman. In in traditional mm. societies, the word crone was used to represent a woman who is powerful, a woman who has wisdom and knowledge, knowledge of healing, knowledge of, of all sorts of things, sometimes knowledge of mysteries, sometimes knowledge of sacred mysteries. And I think our culture is not only attacking women, certainly by men pretending to be women and walking into women's toilets thinking they can do that, yeah. but also with women being able to lead and guide with great wisdom in later years. And, you know, you said you are 62 years old and with age comes great peace and great understanding, more understanding at least. Being an old woman in our Western society, well, here in New Zealand as a white woman, older women are not revered. They're not acknowledged and revered. We're gray-haired and invisible and, you know, post-menopausal, no, no longer sort of attractive sexual partners or ready to have a baby. Um, but in a lot of other cultures and indigenous cultures and, and Maori culture as well, um, you know, the, the older women of the community or the village or the tribe, they're an important part of keeping the community safe through sharing wisdom. So, uh, yeah, this, this song affirms that. I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. So that was I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. I think a really popular and a really meaningful song for so many, so many people. So, Linda Wharton, we're now on our final track, which is track number seven. What are you going to hit us with with this track? 
Okay, so just keeping the theme of my music being all very different, um, the theme of there not being a theme all the way through, <laughs> my final track for soothing in times of stress, and it is one I do listen to when I am stressed and I want some strengthening, and that is I Am Light by India Ari. This speaks to me because in the hard times, it's quite easy to get very enmeshed in a human existence, you know, and believing this is everything, you know, living in our bodies and, and being in this human drama. But this song reminds us that actually we're vibration and light. Um, There's literally what the song is. I am light, I am light. I'm not the, you know, and then list of whatever, you know, the things my parents did, the things that have happened to me. So it's just a reminder that um, when we get enmeshed in the gross, hard, physical existence of being locked in a human body, that really we're light and we're vibration and we're God force and that goes on forever. So that's why that one's, this one soothes me. Yeah, I can so relate to what you're saying um, in my work at the moment, working with people who go through the, the trauma of psychotherapy and no one takes that lightly when they come to see me. They're, they're often trapped or locked away in exactly what you describe. And, you know, in the work, helping people to discover really that they are so much more than just what happened to us, our past, discovering that they are so much more than being trapped or locked in the trauma or the stress of what they're going through and seeing the freedom that comes from that realization. However they find it, everyone finds it in a different way. Everyone has a different path to tread. I I can't say I do the same thing with any single one of my clients, but you know, just the privilege of watching people become free to see themselves mm. as so much more is is such a gift and worth all the pain and suffering that we have to go through sometimes to discover that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's liberating. So I hope that your listeners will, will really find some inspiration in this. Um, I discovered this piece of music probably about 10 years ago. I think it was a it was a personal development course. I think it maybe was a Louise Hay course, and they played this during one of the relaxations that we did. This was the background music, and it really spoke to me, and so I've loved it ever since. Beautiful, and that's what we're going to sign out with. And as we sign out, Linda, this is the the end of your time in the psychotherapist chair on real people with me jerry pives and linda i just want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you for the generosity of your openness of the gift of your great work and what you have done for so many people i'm sure there will be many listeners wanting to share with me in just thanking you for everything that you do Oh, thank you, Jerry. That's so lovely. Thank you for your wonderful affirmation and your kind words. And this has been a joyful experience. I've loved it. I love music. Music is such an integral part of my life. And this was a really novel experience to actually weave my life story through music. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Well, it's been very touching 
um, for me and I'm sure for many people. So thank you for sharing your life with music with meaning. Linda Wharton, thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. You've been listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Tuesdays from 1 p.m. on RCR, Reality Check Radio.